Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In 1951, the Southern Association of Colleges, an accrediting agency, sent a committee to assess a small two-year institution in the mountains of eastern Kentucky named Caney Creek College. Their final report makes for interesting reading, which I'm not sure anyone has ever said about an accreditation report. This institution charges no tuition, the committee reported. The understanding is that students will offer to work in the mountain area, and 90% have done so. There are amazing examples of outstanding service. The president is aged and crippled, but otherwise alert, diligent, and confident. She works seven days a week. The fact is, this committee has never seen an institution like this. One must visit to understand and to be able to interpret. The president was Alice Lloyd, and she was also the founder of the college, as well as a network of charitable organizations located in the Valley of Caney Creek. After her death, the college was renamed in her honor. Allison Holbrook Southard is a Associate Vice President for Institutional Advancement at Alice Lloyd College. She's with us today to talk about this unique institution, explain what institutional advancement actually is, and the unique challenges that all college advancement officers face in this era, as well as those specific to Alice Lloyd. Allison Southard, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me today. I am excited to be here and excited to tell the story of Alice Lloyd and uh, what's going on here in this little valley uh, in in eastern Kentucky. So what would uh, a brief introduction to Alice Lloyd be? Like, what are the quick facts that are on your website for passing visitors and prospective students. So Alice Lloyd College was founded in 1923 as a junior college uh, here in the in the valley of Pippa Passes. It became a four-year institution in the 1980s. Uh, we are a work-study college, which means that all students work as a condition of enrollment, and we charge no tuition to students from our 108 county service area in central Appalachia. So what that means is students who come to Alice Lloyd College, they don't pay out of pocket for the cost of their tuition. It sets us apart and, and makes us very unique. So what, 108 counties, That mm-hmm. which, where are they? Like Lee, that's in Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky? East Kentucky, uh, Virginia, West Virginia, the southeastern part of Ohio that's part of that Appalachian region, and then East Tennessee. So what what was the region like when the college was first established? Pippa Passes kind of indicates that had that took me aback. That's a reference to a Robert Browning poem. Yes. And so there's a way in which uh, the college was founded in 1921. In many ways, it's like a Victorian institution. Uh, it's by people who are still... Re- when Browning was like the rock star of poets, which it's been a while since that was the case. Yeah. So th- so this the story really begins in late 19th century Kentucky. Was this a coal mining area? I mean, was it a, it, was it a depopulated area? I mean, what, what was Caney Creek Valley like at the time? It was a very remote area at the time. 
in a lot of ways that hasn't changed. You still have to be going here to get here. Uh, we're not somewhere that you're just going to stumble upon. But when Mrs. Lloyd came here, she really came um, as a respite for her health. Uh, she was from the Boston area, um, from a fairly well-to-do family. Uh, she had done her, she had went to college at Radcliffe, which was the sister institution to Harvard. Um, she was editor-in-chief of the Cambridge Press, which was the first all-women's publication. And she was a newlywed late in life. She married in her 40s, and she and her mother and her husband came down here to East Kentucky. What she found was a group of people who were motivated they had intelligence. They just didn't have the tools necessary to bring that out. And she basically was approached by a man. She came down here. She'd had complications from polio. She'd had spinal meningitis. She had all these health issues. Her doctor basically tells her that she's not going to survive another Northeast winter. She comes down, settles about six miles from where we are today at a place that's called Hope Cottage. Um, it's no longer in existence, but at the time it was a Presbyterian missionary area. And so she settles there, and a man by the name of Abasha Johnson comes to her and says that he'd had a vision from God that she was sent here to bring learning to the children. Tells her that if she will move to Caney Creek, he will build her a house, he will build the buildings that she needs if she will just teach his children. At that time, and, and this was in between 1915, 1917, when that actually took place, that's a hundred years ago, roughly. There was not even a high school in this county or several surrounding counties a hundred years ago. Not 150, not 200 years ago, but just a hundred years ago, there was no education. And she and her mother came down. They all moved to Caney Creek. Her husband came. Uh, he later left her. Uh, it's not in print, but, you know, we kind of have those stories handed down like any other place. Uh, but he left. She never remarried. And she started to teach. She started to, to teach the children, um, started teaching small kids, best we can understand. His, it was some of his children, some of the local children. And that was really where things started. That was the beginning of... Caney Creek Community Center, uh, which was officially incorporated in 1917. Um, then fast forward to 1922. Sometime between 17 and 22, she started a high school. We know that. Mm -hmm. In 1922, she graduates her first high school graduating class of two boys. 
1923, she starts Caney Junior College with the help of uh, Dr. June Buchanan, who came in 1919. And in 1925, she had her first graduating class of two students. One of those students went on to the University of Kentucky through her support, finished up his four-year degree, then went on to medical school and uh, finished medical school through her support. And by the time that committee comes from the accreditation board, there's like, as best as I read in between the lines, there's a network of charities that have emanated out from that sort of the, the focus point on Caney Creek. So the, how many, I mean, eventually she, she, or they're like missionaries going out from Caney Creek and they're establishing schools across Eastern Kentucky. Is that right? I mean, there's like a network of schools. Yeah. So she is actually, so there wasn't even a high school here. She and those who she trained are credited with starting over 100 one room schoolhouses in East Kentucky. So her and Miss June being here and their work and what they started really started to bring education to all of East Kentucky through its outreach and through the people that were being touched. Um, and, and so fast forward, you know, when that accrediting body comes in, in the 50s, you know, from Sachs, the college has been in operation for almost 30 years. She's graduated several students. She's sending them on to finish four-year degrees. She's helping to send them on to medical school and law school and support them as they do that graduate work with an expectation that they come back to Appalachia. And there, so that, hence the um, the creation of the sort of Caney Creek House at the University of Kentucky. Yeah, right. so that was kind of where that was born out of. There were, uh, there was a couple, maybe two ladies. I'm fuzzy on the details there. But basically some folks donated a house um, or two houses in Lexington uh, where the William T. Young Library sits now. Uh, if you're familiar with Lexington at all, that's where the that the cottage originally sat. Um, we currently operate a basically apartment building um, on Rose Lane, where students can go when they finish their education here at Alice Lloyd. They can go on and be part of our Caney Scholars Program. And so what that means is if they choose to go to the University of Kentucky, they can live in the Caney Cottage rent-free and utility-free for the tenure of their education. So if they're in medical school, law school, any of those advanced degrees, um, even just working on their MBA, um, they can go on and live there, plus receive a small stipend to help cover the cost of their living expenses. If they choose to go somewhere else, um, they want to go to the University of Louisville or they want to go to Vanderbilt or wherever, they, they choose to go somewhere else, they wouldn't have the housing benefit, obviously, but they would still receive the stipend to help go toward the cost of their living expenses. Well, let's focus a little bit more on Alice Lloyd before mm -hmm. we get to that interesting stuff. Um, she's supposed to die 
soon <laughs> and she lives forever yeah how old was she when she died she was in her 90s she died least. in 60 62 i believe okay and the entire up until the end she as the accreditation report said she's confined basically to two rooms yes um she's increasingly uh debilitated but she's uh, her, she's firing on all you know 12 cylinders and she's got a uh, obviously an incredible force of will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she was joined by Miss June in 1919. Miss mm-hmm. June was from Moravia, New York. She had done her undergraduate work at Syracuse, was in graduate school at Wellesley, also very well educated, came from a well-to-do family. She came down and joined Mrs. Lloyd in 1919. As Mrs. Lloyd's health declined, she basically stayed in her office, in her room, in her bedrooms, and she would spend 14, 16 hours a day typing letters, appeal letters and thank you letters to donors on an Oliver number nine typewriter. If you know anything about that, you know, when you reach the end of the line, the entire carriage must be shifted back over. She was paralyzed on one side, and we had an alum who told us the story of working for her and working with her, and she would basically have to get up and stand up and use her entire body to shift the carriage back over um, to start a new line. But she did that over and over. Like, that was just how much determination that she had. And she never gave up. I mean, she she came here and she came into this area at a time where women didn't really go to college. Heaven forbid, start their own college. And so she just really, she and Miss June were pioneers before their time and transformed an entire region uh, with what they did. And, and she often said, she and Miss June both often said that it was because they found their purpose here on, on Caney Creek, here in Pippa Passes. So from the beginning, the campus expands like Tuskegee with the students building the buildings. Yeah. So when the, when the community center was founded in 17, there was uh, there was a sawmill here on on Caney. There was um, they were building small houses. They were building buildings. Um, they were building tiny houses before those were really in vogue. I guess um, <laughs> they were called starter houses. Yeah, that time. and uh, so they were doing that. There was um, the Christmas Pretties program which we still operate today. That was started by Mrs. Lloyd's mother. She realized that kids really weren't getting anything for Christmas. They, you know, the families were poor. And so she wrote back into her to her friends in the Northeast and asked them to send a little pretty for the kids at Christmas time. And so they would send small gifts, candy, things like that. We still continue that program today, and what that has turned into now is we are giving out over 4,000 gifts a year to kids in the local school systems. 
and that's primarily through um, donations and friends and donors who support that program. Uh, she had a clothing exchange here on campus um, where folks, again, from the Northeast would send gen gently used clothing and household items and things like that, and she would distribute them to the community. Um, there was no medicine in the region at the time. She was able to get a nurse brought here on campus. And we have learned in recent years through Board of Trustees minutes and just a few different things that the college was really born out of necessity. So we have the community center. It's operating. You know, she's teaching children. We've got some high school kids. The Spanish flu epidemic hits. There's no medicine in the mountains. So she, in, a, in trustees' recorded minutes, more or less tells the trustees, we can't get doctors to come in. Nobody has any money to pay them. We're going to have to home grow them. And so that was kind of how the college was started, was out of the necessity for medical professionals within the region. And so one of those first two that graduate ends up going on to medical school and then coming back. So we met at a conference at which uh, David Staley, frequent guest on the podcast, uh, was speaking about his new book, along with uh, Donna Monahan on uh, Knowledge Towns. Mm -hmm. They were on the podcast. And what you had said to me, or I said to you, is that this is basically as crazy as Knowledge Towns might sound to some of us. Alice Lloyd was doing it a hundred over a hundred years ago, in which she said, "I'll to create this place, I'll build a college," which is. Which sounds crazy in 2023 and must have sounded insane in 1919, but it worked. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with in reading Knowledge Towns and, and, and Staley and Monaghan's work is, is great um, in looking at how college campuses and universities can transform an entire city, an entire town. And really become the hub of activity for uh, the local area. And we have seen that, you know, we saw that here. That was, you know, how this college was started, um, was out of necessity to build a hub, to build somewhere, um, that third place in the community for people to go to and to gather. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me in in Staley's work is the 12 rules for place-based success, which really mirror the 12 elements of a knowledge enterprise. And two of those just really resonated with me and with the work that's going on here at Alice Lloyd. And the first is to encourage lives of purpose, not possessions. And there's a guiding philosophy that we teach here at Alice Lloyd. It was started by Mrs. Lloyd and Herbert Palmer from uh, the University of Harvard as a way to teach service. And it's the purpose road philosophy. And it's the idea that students are literally and figuratively walking down the purpose road here, garnering desired character traits, um, action, integrity, duty, conscience, courage. 
And our hope and our goal is that when they complete their walk here, literally and figuratively on the Purpose Road, they're prepared for a lifetime of service. Service to who? Service to God first and then to their fellow man. And uh, within this Purpose Road philosophy idea, uh, at the end, you see uh, a fleeting goal. And the idea is that those who have walked the Purpose Road can surpass that fleeting goal, uh, which may be possessions or uh, notoriety or any of these internal personal accomplishments and instead be focused on the greater good and focused on serving those around them. And, and that ties right into recruiting purpose-driven migrants. Um, that is one of, you know, Staley's elements in creating these knowledge towns and these knowledge enterprises. And I think that Alice Lloyd College has been able to do that from the beginning. Uh, first with Miss June. She came to Pippa Passes from upstate New York. She rode so many miles on a horseback through the creek bed, said that she got here, was served the worst meal of her life, and the next morning Mrs. Lloyd had her in a classroom teaching first graders. And she never left. She she went back home for a time, and then she came back, and she worked here until she passed away in the 80s. And we see that so often People are drawn to this place because of our mission and because of the students that we're serving and the difference that we're making. Let's, I'm going to get back to part of that in a little bit, but let's talk about fundraising first as Alice Lloyd did it. Um, because because uh, you it's irresistible. You mentioned the typewriter. Yeah. And that she was typing 12. And one of the things in that accreditation report uh that they describe is their, I mean, it's such an accreditation committee. The thing that they're really, they're really like up in arms about is the accounting system and how accounts are kept. This is, you know, um, so could you, but this is part of where she's getting her money from and in what denominations that it came in long before small dollar donations became a thing in political campaigns. God help us all. <laughs> Alice Lloyd was pioneering small dollar donations to educational institutions in a way that advancement officers of today must find incomprehensible. Yeah. So when she started this work, she started with a list of 10 names or 40 names. I'm sorry, 40 names of folks that she and her mother knew from the Northeast that they thought would help them. And her first appeal letter said, the leaders are here. They just need an opportunity. And that was the first appeal letter that was sent out by Alice Lloyd asking for help in the work that was going on here. From that, there was sort of a network of donors who were created um, through that and through her just reaching out and word of mouth and people in these circles within the Northeast hearing about what was going on here. 
Um, she always wrote thank you letters to anybody who gave, whether that was a penny or a dollar or a hundred dollars. She, or, or more, you know, she was sending thank you notes and acknowledging what people had done. That was actually how Miss June got involved. She was at Wellesley. It was the first year of the $2 bill. They thought that it was bad luck to keep the first $2 bill. So all these girls put together an envelope full of $2 bills, send it down here to Mrs. Lloyd. She sends them back a thank you letter thanking them for helping her to build Wellesley Hall. And Miss June basically said she had to come down here and see what this lady had built with an envelope full of $2 bills. And that, you know, she used the resources that she had and what she was being given. And Miss June later said um, there was a time, and it was right around the time of the 1950s in that accreditation report, that the college was struggling financially. They were building buildings. They didn't really have the money to pay the workers, but the people kept working because they said that they knew Mrs. Lloyd would find a way. And Miss June said, um, Mrs. Lloyd knew and I did too that God would continue to send friends to keep this miracle alive. And so they just had this tremendous faith that that the fundraising would keep going and would keep coming in. So in 1955, Mrs. Lloyd was featured against her will. She was basically tricked into it uh, on the Ralph Edwards show, This Is Your Life. And at the end of the show, Ralph Edwards made a plea. It was the first time he'd ever done anything like that and said, you know, please put whatever you can in an envelope and send it to the Caney Junior College, uh, 100 Purpose Road, Pippa Pass, Kentucky. Actually, I guess it wouldn't have been 100 Purpose Road at the time. I don't think they would have had that. But in Pippa Pass, Kentucky, and keep this woman's, this woman's dream alive. And so there was an influx of mail from that. And $1 and $2 and $3 donations, just whatever people could send. And it's a really neat thing that when I get out and I travel, I still meet people who first heard about Alice Lloyd College from it being on This Is Your Life, whether they saw it or their parents saw it. And they continue to give. <laughs> Well, there's like a that's like a illustration for a uh, textbook on advancement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once people start giving, they're going to keep on giving something. Yeah, yeah. You know, or they give two dollars. Yeah. Um, so, and she had to keep all this straight and keep all her books in order, and somehow she she did it. Even though they record that, she, I mean, people are sending twenty five cents, which is now crazy. But what I was thinking about that's it, like sending it like five or ten bucks now. Yeah. That's like that's not that's not so bad. Um, uh, it's still small, but uh, she recorded all these things, and the entire time, Alice Lloyd was one of. I mean, it's now one of three. Co uh, there, so you corrected me before we began uh, talking. There are nine colleges 
that require students to work, three of them do not charge tuition. Correct. And Alex Lloyd is one of those three. Yeah. So you've been doing that since the beginning. And that's, I imagine, I mean, you look pale, you look tired. This must be an incredible, (laughs) you look so sad. Uh, It must be an incredible amount of work to keep this going for all this time. So the work study program was another thing that was almost like born out of necessity. So Mm -hmm. she began to accept students and they would pay whatever they could. So maybe that's $10. Maybe that's a chicken. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's a cow. Maybe that's a dozen eggs. But they would work on campus, so they would supply the labor. And we have continued that model. In the 90s, the federal government decided to make, to recognize, I think, five institutions who made the greater commitment to their students, and all of their students worked. And so that was where the we started with five official work-study colleges recognized by the federal government, and there are now nine. And so what that looks like, what that looked like then was students paying whatever they could for tuition and providing labor on campus. What that looks like today at Alice Lloyd, uh, like you said, we're one of three who don't charge tuition. So what that looks like today is Our students come here, they don't pay out of pocket for their tuition, and they work. All of our students are required to work at least 10 hours a week. Some work more. Um, Some of our students, they can work up to 20 hours a week. Our student supervisors will work 20 hours a week. And then students who have a little bit more financial need. They just need a, you know, they need that little bit of extra money. They'll work up to 20. And they do a little bit of everything. Um, They work in our offices. They work on grounds. They work as janitors. They work in the cafeteria. Um, They work in our cafe. They work in the library. And so from an operational model, we only have three full-time staff who manage the day-to-day operations of the campus. So grounds, cleaning, trash pickup, all of those little things that keep a college operating. We have three full-time staff who manage that, and everything under that is student-led. So the, like, grounds. Mm -hmm. So I guess, like, seniors are taking the first years under their wing and saying, this is how we do this, this is how we do this, this is what we do. We, you know, we put this in this way, we put that in that way, we paint that rock white, we, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much what that looks like. Um, Our student supervisors are usually upperclassmen, and so they're bringing the students in, they're training them, and working together as a team which is a really interesting thing to watch. Um, You watch students come in as freshmen and watch them grow and mature through their work-study assignments, through their classes, and all of the things that they're learning inside and outside the classroom. And then you watch them walk across the stage at graduation. And it just reminds you, every year, we had commencement two weeks ago, 
There's not a commencement that I don't sit there, you know, wiping my eyes um, because it just reminds you of why we do what we do is to see these students grow and succeed. And the work study model too has really been super valuable in helping our students get into graduate school and gain employment after graduation. Sure. Of last year's graduating class, so 2022, over 97% of our graduates were employed or in graduate or professional school six months after graduation. So when they finish at Alice Lloyd, not only you know are they not graduating thousands and thousands of dollars in debt, but they have the skills necessary to go to graduate school, to walk into a job, and their first day on the job is not their first day of work. So they're prepared. They're ready to go. Not only that, many of them have now been managers, mm-hmm. uh, and they've had they've had responsibility. Um, they don't have to wait for that until they're 25 or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, they know what it's like. Um how many students are there at Alice Lloyd now? And how many in a, roughly in a, in a graduating class? Usually around our capacity is about 630 to 650 students. And usually our graduating classes are anywhere between 80 to 100. So that's, of course, tiny compared to in, in today's, I mean, this is kind of probably dead typical of colleges in the early 20th century. But colleges have been on a, um, a special diet. They've been bulking up. Yeah. Um, they've been taking steroids since the, the 50s and the 60s. The That means, of course, everyone knows everyone else at Alice Lloyd. It does. It does. Um, it It's a very unique environment. And so our students come in. And, and this year in our graduate survey that, that we gave to all of our graduates um, the Friday before commencement, we did something different, and we asked them to describe Alice Lloyd College in one word. How would you describe it? And overwhelmingly, the answers were home, family, community, support. And for the population of students that we serve, this small community environment is very important. Um, this year, over 50% of our graduates were first-generation college graduates. And that population of students faces unique challenges that a lot of their peers don't. And so having the community here allows them uh, a support system, and it gives them uh, the resources that they need. Uh, the majority of our faculty and administrative staff actually live here on campus. So we have our students living here in residence halls. Our faculty and administrative staff are living here in campus housing. We eat in the cafeteria with our students. We work out with them in the fitness center. Uh, We see them if you're out walking the dog of the evening. And it allows us to form mentor relationships and really provide one-on-one support uh, to students who, who may need it. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about the terrain, the economic terrain when Alice Lloyd got there. Speaking of terrain, I th- looking at uh, Google Maps, showing, uh, looking at a picture of the campus, it's like situated on either side of like a switchback, right? I mean, it's like, there's a, it's, so it's right 
there's like a sw- highway, a switch uh, on a switchback in this valley. Mm-hmm. So you are there's a reason why you're offering campus housing because <laughs> it's it, it, it's hard to get there even now. Um, but it's uh, what is that you never had a coal rush in Caney Creek in Alice Lloyd's time. And so I would imagine things are still, things are even more, what's the economic situation in the region now? From the time that Alice Lloyd came to now, there have certainly been improvements in the region. Um, there's better access to healthcare. There's better access to education. There's, there are more opportunities in 2023 than there have been previously. Um, but there are still challenges that we face. And one of the great challenges is, uh, educational attainment. Like I just said, over 50% of our graduates were first-generation college graduates this year. Um, I, in some research that that I just finished last fall, uh, something that was really eye-opening was how much college completion rates still lag behind the the national average within Appalachia. And so, for instance, uh, McDowell County, West Virginia, according to the Appalachian Regional Commission, had the lowest population percentage of the population with a bachelor degree of any uh, county in Appalachia. And they had 5.2% of their population over the age of 25. Well, then when you take a look at that, over 31% of that population lived below the poverty line. So we see, you know, so you can see there the correlation between education and earnings in in a lifetime. Um, There was another in in Boone County, West Virginia, uh, 8.7% of the population hold a bachelor's degree or higher, uh, and only 17% live below the poverty line. So, you know, you you can kind of see how that education correlates to the level of poverty. And so while there's, there's a lot that's happening in the region, a lot of positive things, there's still a need for education and educated professionals to stay in Appalachia, to return to Appalachia, to stay in Appalachia. And I, I think that there's a, a great push in my generation for people who may have left to go to college, they may have left to do other things, and now they're starting to come back. You're seeing a lot of downtown revitalizations and, and just different movements like that within the region from young people who want to see our mountain towns move forward. Um, we, you know, coal mining is not what it once was. Uh, there are still mines in operation that's still the primary industry in Appalachia. Um, but it, it's not booming like it was, you know, in the, in the sixties and seventies anymore. Right. It's, um, it's also true. And there's, I'll I'll link to this in the show notes, the research that there are a lot of college capable kids in rural counties across the United States. Uh, people who have the college grades who have seem to have a work ethic, but who aren't going to college. Um, and I'm sure that's the case in Appalachia as well as other places. 
True that it is. I mean, you, you know, you're always going to have uh, people who are who are able and who are, you know, who have the grades, who have the grit, and, and are not going. And you know, I, I can't speak to to all of rural Appalach uh, of all of rural America, but I can I can speak to what we see here in our region. And one of the greatest barriers is economic resources. And Mrs. Lloyd made a promise a hundred years ago that she would never turn away a qualified student who was willing to work because of a lack of money. And we have kept that promise and we continue to keep that promise. And that is why institutions like Alice Lloyd are so important is to help remove those barriers and, and to, you know, provide those opportunities for those kids who they're able, um, they have the intellect, they have the ability, they just need an opportunity. So what does an associate vice president for institutional advancement do all week? <laughs> well, it depends on the week. Um, I, am very blessed uh, to to get to be in this role and to to get to be here. Um, I joke all the time. I'm not even sure that my parents and my husband really know what I do on a on a day to day basis. Um, but institutional advancement is really just uh, taking a look at what can we do to improve our capacity to fulfill our mission. And so what that looks like uh, in my role is sharing the story with, of Alice Lloyd College and of these young people who are here with other people who want to make a difference in Appalachia and want to make a difference in the lives of young people. And we, you know, I do that. Uh, we do that through fundraising campaigns. Uh, we do, you know, we send out appeal letters. Um, we send out email blasts. We're on social media, uh, just telling the stories of what's going on here and working to connect with people. And so I spend part of my time here in the office, and then I spend part of my time traveling around the country, meeting the absolute best people in the world and getting to say thank you uh, to those folks who are making education possible. And I have a, a unique perspective. I actually am an, a 2015 graduate of Alice Lloyd College. And so there are people that I get to go see who made my education possible. So I'm not only thanking them for what they're doing now, but for what they have done. And uh, I get to sit in this seat because of those generous individuals. So... I, I don't want to ask too many secrets, too many trade <laughs> secrets, but um, are you, how often do you send out an email blast? Uh, what What's the expectation? I mean, you are, are uh, my impression of like watching advancement departments is that they're always thinking about the campaign two or three years from now while running the one that's going now. And that there's like, they think of, advancement campaigns the way i don't know artillery officers think about you know targeting a barrage <laughs> you know they're they're shaping the battlefield uh, so i uh, i mean how does this how what percentage what's the percentage of gifts that keeps alice lloyd uh going i i assume that you're still getting envelopes full of cash from some people uh, uh that continues but at the same time you're seeking institutional don uh, institutional donors 
uh, you're speaking large donors. I mean, what's the what's the mix that's working for Alice Lloyd? So we're really unique in terms of fundraising in general. Not not even just higher ed fundraising, but nonprofit fundraising in general. Um, other colleges uh, outside of Alice Lloyd have pretty much five ways that they can raise money. So the first is direct government grants. You know, let's let's go to the government and apply for a grant. And the second uh, kind of coincides with that. Let's apply for a government-issued bond. And, you know, a low-interest bond, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Alice Lloyd doesn't take any direct government funding. So those two options are out the window. Why not? Uh, by board policy, we don't take any direct government funding. Um, we, If you take it, they tell you how to spend it. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that out loud, uh, but... <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, by board policy, we don't take any direct government funding. Uh, and that has been an appeal to, you know, numerous individuals and foundations over the years. Um, mm-hmm. The third way that, that other colleges and, and universities can raise money is to raise tuition. You know, you want to build a building, you want to, you know, do this project or that project. Let's raise tuition and pass the cost on to our students. Alice Lloyd doesn't charge That tuition. is the traditional way. <laughs> That's, yeah. uh, but you don't charge tuition, so that ruins yeah, so, that. That completely okay, so ruins that. That the, ruins like, the, that. Uh, the fourth way. I mean, basically, no National Science Foundation grants to support all the sciences right. and no tuition raising. It's like, how can you possibly live? This is barbaric. Right, right. And then, um, you know, the, the other way is to, to borrow money from a private institution. So go to your local bank and say, hey, we need a million dollars. Guess what? Alice Lloyd College doesn't borrow money. We have no long-term debt. So, you know, I'm down to the wire here. Um, And so we rely on private individuals and foundations across the country who believe in what we do and want to be part of what's going on here. Um, You know. And... People don't often realize this, but in usually for the nonprofit world, foundations are big, but they don't give as much money as individuals. I mean, so that's that I would imagine it's that same disproportion. You're relying then largely on individual contributions to to make budget. Uh, I, w- I would say that we receive we receive good support from foundations, from from private foundations. Mm-hmm. Um Private individuals and foundations make up a lot, the majority of our fundraising. Of course, we rely on individuals, um, or not individuals, but our alumni as well. Uh, We have about 40% alumni support. Last year, we were ranked number five in the nation uh, for our alumni giving. Um, But that, you know, we rely on those private individuals and those foundations. That's that's the only option that we have. And we're Because these are these are like the advancement is has tremendous problems since the financial crisis of 2008. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure COVID you probably have experienced some some COVID related, you know, disturbances in the force. It, uh but I would but but here you are dealing with 
major self-inflicted problems, evidence. <laughs> um, you know, we have been tremendously blessed. I, it, you know, it, it, I guess sounds daunting and sounds scary, um, but we have been tremendously blessed. Um, you know, individuals and, and foundations having the ability to put their money where they want to put it uh, is is what keeps us going. And you know, COVID. I know just kind of wreaked havoc on the fundraising world in general. Um, I, I've seen it um, and you know, we, you go to different meetings and you, you're in webinars and, and you're doing different things and talking to different people and, and we see it and, and we hear it, but we've been blessed. We've had record breaking fundraising years for the last two years. Um, and that, you know, everybody here rolls up their sleeves and goes to work. I will tell everybody I have the best development team in the entire country. Uh, and and I truly believe that because everybody uh, going back to, you know, what we talked about earlier about having a purpose and, and being purpose driven. People are here because they want to be here and they're willing to roll up their sleeves and go to work and do what it takes. How many students do you have working on the development team? Uh, this summer, I have five students who are in our back office who are working in gift receiving and appeals and things like that. Uh, and then we've got, I think our, our team, as far as employees, I think we have thir 13 or 14 um, spread out across different areas. So... Um I, I, you could probably write a whole um, chapter to William Sturdivant's uh, book on on the, is it the Artful Giver, uh, but the uh, what's your like number one thing to take away for people that want to do development right? I mean, are you you you're bu you've built a relationship over since my goodness since 1919, mm -hmm. the college has been building relationships with givers, and now you find yourself as a graduate of Alice Lloyd. Um, you're now basically the chief supervisor of those relationships, which is a kind of an awesome way of putting it. Um, it's a it's 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 a grave and yet joyful undertaking. Yeah, the the biggest thing that I would tell anybody is you have to believe in what you're doing because if you don't, people will see right through you. Um, being here at Alice Lloyd has been coming back to Alice Lloyd because I left for a couple years after I graduated, went on to do to work in banking and then came back here. That's been one of the best decisions that I've ever made. And I, I truly believe that. And this place um, is just it's a gem. And I think that for anybody who wants to work in advancement, anybody who wants to work in fundraising, you have to be somewhere that you truly believe in what's going on and that you're willing to be part of it too. Um, and, and here, one of the, the things that is most important to me is obviously, you know, we have to raise so much to meet budget. And and we've been blessed to do that uh, for years and years and years. I, at least the last 23 that I know of, um, Alice Lloyd College has operated in the black. Uh, we've met our budget every year and, and balanced it. Um, 
But one of the biggest things to me is this is not fundraising, it's friendraising. And when I get out and get to go visit with folks, I'm not going into people's living rooms, looking at what they've given before and saying, okay, I know that you can give, you've given this much and I know you can give this much and I need you to make this gift and I need you to be part of this. I get to go sit down and I get to say thank you. And I get to say, you know, your support um, helped Montana to graduate. Your support uh, changed Jonathan's life and he's the first in his family to get a college degree. And that is why people give. They don't give because I'm out here soliciting. They don't give because we're building a new chapel and bell tower. They give to change the lives of these young people from Appalachia and change the course of their families' lives. One final question, which is a, it's a tough one. When we were talking, when we met, um, some of the things you said reminded me of someone I knew who was principal, founding principal of a charter school in the South Bronx. And many of the parents with their kids was like, this is the way I can get my kids out of this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. This is, this is their one opportunity is them, this school succeeding and they, them succeeding in this school. Um, this is the exit plan. And I'm certain that um, a lot of students are coming to Alice Lloyd and Alice Lloyd is their exit plan. Maybe from their family, from Eastern, from Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky, wherever. When we began this, uh, describing this, this missionary zeal that Alice Lloyd and her graduates had to go away, but then come back. Um, we can debate this, why this happened. This is a historical podcast, but that's not my point here. The, the point is that place has less of a magnetic pull on people than it did, even Eastern Kentucky, you know, um, Yet you made reference to people like yourself and others who are coming back to revive their mountain towns. Um, do you see that happening? Is that, I mean, is that, can we believe in that for the future? Are there Alice Lloyd graduates who are going to University of Kentucky and deciding to come back to Eastern Kentucky, just like resettle uh, and to revive what they love? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Uh, over 83% of our graduates currently reside in Appalachia today, right now. And we were all given something here. We were given an education and we were given an opportunity. And we were taught that we have a duty to pay that forward. And for me, that looks like sitting here in this seat and making sure that the students who come after me have the same opportunities. For others, that looks like um, opening a series of medical clinics in the next town over. Uh, one of our graduates is doing that. Uh, for one of our graduates, it looks like being the county attorney here in, within this county and, and helping in the justice system. Uh, for others, it looks like being educators and teaching that next group of leaders. Um, but I absolutely believe that the leaders are here and 
we're educating them and they're going to stay here. My guest today has been Allison Holbrook-Southern. She is Associate Vice President for Institutional Advancement at Alice Lloyd College in Pippa Passes, Kentucky. Allison, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 